Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm delighted to have with us on the show today, Tara McGowan. Tara is the founder and publisher of Courier Newsroom and CEO of Good Information, Inc., a civic incubator that invests in immediate solutions to counter disinformation online. This interview is part of our partnership with the International Leadership Association and the ILA Annual Global Conference where Tara spoke. Thanks so much for having me, Maureen. It's great to be here. I got into this work, which I will I will certainly help explain a little bit more. I started my career as a journalist and I covered international affairs and politics at organizations like 60 Minutes at CBS that folks may have heard of and Frontline. I did documentary and political reporting work. And I became a little bit disenchanted um, with corporate media myself in my tenure there, but also got very swept up in politics and covering the 2008 election and ultimately uh, left journalism to pursue a career in politics for a while. So I diverted. But a common thread for all of the work I have always done, especially now that I am running a news organization years and years later, is about storytelling and getting good factual information in front of people to very explicitly encourage more civic participation. I am as pro-democracy as they come. I didn't think I ever needed to be that way growing up, but it turns out that there are really high stakes that we're facing in this country and in other countries abroad. The threat of democracy is very real. There are new, very powerful authoritarian factions and regimes that have been able to manipulate the information ecosystem and information architecture that we all live in today in ways that have real world consequences. And so through the work that I did, both in journalism and then in politics, I learned a great deal about social media platforms in general. I'm a digital native. I've been on the internet since I was about nine years old. So I do remember a time vaguely before I ever did dial up uh, AOL, but it's very brief and those memories are fleeting. And Facebook opened up beyond Harvard my freshman year of college in 2004. So I've really been on these platforms from the day that they have come onto the market and watched my own behavior change, our behavior change, but also just the amount of misinformation and disinformation explode, especially in this country, to have really grave consequences. And something that everyone who works in different sectors understands, misinformation, disinformation, and frankly, propaganda have always existed, right? They have always, always existed for as long as there's been humanity. And bad actors will always find a way, given whatever the media is of the moment, to be able to manipulate that media. And that's what we saw happen with the advent of social media. But it was so much worse than any other technological frontier before because of algorithms. Algorithms are what these companies like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Google, um, they use their models that they create to feed you more of the content that you engage with. So when you like something on a platform or you comment on it, it's taking all of that data in and it's curating an information experience for you. You're getting a very curated newsfeed. It sounds really great, right? We all just get the content we want, the information we want, the people we want. But the backlash effect of that is that we are just getting information that reinforces existing belief systems and behaviors. And we're no longer having as much access if we are not proactive to other ideas, other voices, other opinions. And so that has contributed to the deepening of polarization and, of course, all of the negative outputs that have come because of that in this country and other countries. Things like inciting of political violence that we're seeing a huge uptick in the United States. 
the siege on the Capitol was all organized around the big lie that was spread using these platforms. So these algorithms have supercharged the spread and reach and influence of disinformation. And we don't have regulation of these platforms. And I was so excited to talk to you today because it's only been a few months since I spoke at the conference. And yet in those few months, the media ecosystem has been entirely disrupted once again, where the platforms that go unregulated that I mentioned operate off of these algorithms, they're increasingly being leveraged by their owners for political or ideological or other. And I think your listeners will probably understand I'm talking about Elon Musk because you can't really go anywhere anymore without hearing about Elon Musk purchasing Twitter for $44 billion. But I think that we are just in an incredibly disruptive moment right now where we have all of these factors coming to play and it's creating a perfect storm where local news has essentially catered in the United States because they couldn't evolve their business models when Google and Facebook cannibalized online advertising, right? They took away all those small business ad dollars and corporate ad dollars because you could get a higher bang for your back advertising on these platforms. Local news didn't know how to survive. So we have the death of local news, which has a direct correlation to civic participation. Local news is still the most trusted news source among Americans, still in survey research. And yet we have less and less of it. Corporate media, national media, like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, your state newspaper of record, they, in order to survive that disruption in advertising, started to introduce paywalls. There is now finally good research out there that shows what we all could have expected, that the people who paid paywalls are the wealthiest and most educated and informed Americans in this country. So the rest of America, what we call at my organization, passive news consumers, they're getting their information for free by scrolling social media platforms and talking to their personal friends and neighbors. And that experience is increasingly siloed and we're all living in these echo chambers. And when you're not proactively paying for a newspaper or listening to NPR, you're just getting what your phone feeds you in your break from work or when you're trying to fall asleep or procrastinating. When you're in that space, you feel like you are getting a lot of information, but it is very, very, very siloed. And also your attention span is so short these days. That essentially you have like, I'm struggling to describe how designed your information diet can become by these platforms without you knowing it. If you are just passively getting that information, disinformation knows that this is where information can move the most and it's free. And so we've just seen bad actors and extreme media and just disinformation brokers really understand how these algorithms work understand how to get in front of these audiences that aren't accessing good information and really manipulate them without any recourse. Tara, can you tell our listeners the, the idea of a troll farm? It's a phrase that a lot of people don't know, and yet it is a significant influencer for what anyone who isn't getting news from a curated journalistic source. So I know if I go to MSNBC, I'm going to get liberal I know if I go to Fox, I'm going to get conservative. I expect from each of those what they are advertised to be. I expect others to be more mainstream. If I go to Facebook, I am likely to get stuff that's been pumped into the system from who knows where, which is what you've said. But these are, in some cases, aggressively fed machines. 
So troll farm can mean a few different things. I'm not an expert on them and there is an expertise, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but I will say a troll farm can mean truly a network of bots. So robots, to your point, bots that are created that will auto reply or auto share content. So it increases the reach and the volume very quickly of a narrative, right, of a piece of disinformation or a storyline, you know, like the explicit disinformation that the COVID-19 vaccine caused infertility. That was like a narrative we saw popping up everywhere and it was promulgated by people who wanted to sow mistrust in the vaccine very intentionally for their own agenda. So there are bot networks, they exist. The platforms up until now had done a great deal to eradicate those. They weren't wholly successful. It's an endless game of whack-a-mole, but they did put in a lot of provisions. You know, Twitter just, I think, disbanded their council for moderation um, and privacy and security this week, just, you know, the stream of all of the bad changes that are being made over at that company. But troll firms can also be used to describe networks of real people, individuals who are working in concert and in coordination together to juice the algorithm, meaning liking and sharing every single one of each other's posts in accorded weighted because the more engagement a post gets, the more reach that platform will give that piece of content. And so it can mean either of those things. In both respects, it's nefarious, right? It's trying to game the information environment you're in. And we know that when you hear a lie three times, it becomes the truth is that old adage, right? And so that's what bad actors really rely on is volume. Steve Bannon, an extreme right-wing ideologue and um, former Trump advisor, he is infamous for this quote about how you have to flood the zone, right? You need to overpower the information you don't want people to have with the information you want them to have. Whether that information is factual, nefarious, hateful, what have you. And that's really what troll farms and these coordinated networks and massive media institutions on the right wing in this country have really been capitalizing on. They've recreated a broadcast effect by being everywhere all at once, most especially in these algorithms and in these platforms where passive news consumers spend their time. In essence, you're saying so-and-so got indicted, whatever. On the same day, you want to break news about the war in the Ukraine or something that makes my indictment non-newsworthy. That's right. And the really scary piece of this is that people who have an agenda, a political agenda, an ideological agenda, a social agenda, what have you, where they, for instance, want to sow mistrust in institutions or in government, right, to be able to build a case and a movement around their replacement or their solution for problems that they perceive, they are essentially going into these spaces and driving very offensive storylines that are false. So they're not just responding rapidly and at a large volume. They're essentially like concocting in a lab of sorts. What is the storyline that's going to get us to our intended consequence? So an example that I use is critical race theory, CRT, which we heard a ton about in 2021, a little bit less now, but it has evolved into book banning across this country, happening at school board committee meetings and school board races and all of these things. But that was something that there were people on the extreme right who said parents are in it like they've had their kids home from the pandemic. They're exhausted. The rules have changed every day. Their kid can go to school. The kid can't go to school. They're feeling vulnerable. They're feeling agitated. They need more support. We want to manipulate that and turn them against the schools 
to make an ideological case. This is essentially what happened. And so CRT was not taught in any schools in this country, but they brought this idea out into the lab and started to proliferate it on social media and through these channels, riling parents up who are already so emotionally raw and exhausted about saying like, no, 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 no. Like you can't make these decisions for me. We started to hear things about groomers and teachers grooming kids and LGBTQ rights and all these different things. It came out of nowhere because it came out of a strategy. And that's what's really scary because then it becomes the national news story, right? Fights are breaking out in school board races and the national cable news is picking it up. And at that point, the damage has been done because this is happening at the local level, both local geographically, but also local in terms of social media platforms and specific echo chambers people live in. Very difficult to monitor. Very difficult to message about or report on at the national level until the consequences come to bear from that disinformation entering communities. Just to play back what I hear is if I want to influence a political race, doing something like this, whether it's on my local level with a school board or at a national level, D's versus R's versus I's, we launch an offensive that may or may not, and it sounds like is often not based in what we would consider facts, and it bounces around the echo chamber and does its intended damage just like a bullet does inside of a tank. It just bounces around and destroys anything in its reach. That's right. And it's because their agenda is very different than, let's say, the New York Times, right? Like, The New York Times objective, and they have said this explicitly, is to bring on more paying subscribers. That is what their business is oriented around, right? Like, you know, they have a tagline, all the new bits of print, they do excellent journalism, they're renowned for it. And yet their core objective is to increase their paying subscriber base so they can continue to grow and be a powerful source of information. That dictates how they target audiences they want to get in front of, right? And so that puts them into echo chambers with people who just want their needs and information and could be paying consumers, leaving the rest of people behind. So one of the things that I try to stress a lot is that I don't think we have a supply problem, per se, of good factual news and information in America. We have a distribution problem. We are no longer building media organizations that uphold objectivity or just transparency. Another whole soapbox I can get on, I don't think objectivity is realistic. I think transparency is critical about where you stand, who you are, who your funders are, so people can make their own decisions. But when you have their objectives being focused on paying consumers and all of these people left behind, the only people that are going to intentionally reach those people are ones who have an agenda that is, in their opinion, more valuable than the monetary objective of the New York Times finding paying consumers. And that's where it becomes really dicey. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where we need to figure out a way to shift the incentive structures of news and media organizations that do put out factual, verifiable, ethically sound journalism and reporting to get in front of communities who are not being reached by it. And I have not seen that movement happen in the news industry in America. In part, it makes sense. I run a business and I have to pay people. So there is an amount of either I'm an NPR kind of funded by donations, listeners, or I'm funded by advertisers. I think those are the two primary, right? That's fate. At least current business models. So 
we do need to understand that it is not free. We may not pay for it when we turn on our radio and stick a dollar in the machine, but somebody's paying the salaries and the equipment. And that's right. Even our podcast is not free. We pay for it because it's part of our mission. That's right. And this is one of the big shifts we're going through right now. And when I talk about the disruptive moment that we're in with media, for decades and decades and decades, good information was free, free and widely accessible because it was more centralized. There were just fewer places to get it. So, you know, you think about the golden years of evening news, right? Walter Cronkite, what have you. The vast majority of the American population was operating off of the same information, the same storylines and the same truth. Of course, there were biases baked in there and there was this illusion of objectivity, right? Like every, I say this all the time, every time an editor decides what to cover, they're deciding what not to cover. That is on its very own nature, not objective. The decentralization that really, really exploded first with talk radio, but then the internet, of course, took it to a whole new level. Social media accelerated it further, meant self-selection, which is a beautiful thing and also a very fraught thing, became the name of the game. And that's where it just becomes so important that we figure out a way to subsidize news organizations that have you know, financial obligations and incentives to be able to actually get their information and news in front of more of the population. And I do, I'm heartened by a lot of nonprofit efforts across the country. They're a little bit disparate, but to try to invest in local journalism again, I just worry that I don't hear enough about, and I think it's just a lack of education because it's not an easy subject, about how this information is moving on social media and how it can and, and needs to be essentially manipulated in an intentional way to get in front of new people to keep them informed. And we know what happens when that doesn't happen. We actually know that red states, Republican states that are more deeply red than battlegrounds or, or Democratic states in this country had a higher incidence of COVID death and a lower adoption of that COVID vaccines in this country. There is a direct correlation between the information diet of conservatives in this country who have their own media infrastructure and have different echo chambers they live in and people who live in more progressive or non-conservative information ecosystems. We have the data to prove it out. And so we know that it's a problem and, and we just need to bring more solutions to bear. This is a leadership podcast. We, our producer, Dan Michalko and I are heavily committed to people getting good information. Like I said, the podcast is not free for us. It is free to others. There was a moment during a political race where I was disappointed in the outcome. And my commitment in that moment was, I can't change what voters did, even though I was highly disappointed. But what I can commit to is putting out the best, most ethical information I can do. Now, I realize even that is biased because it's my definition of best. It's my definition of ethical. And if people think I'm a lunatic, then they don't listen, presumably. But my commitment was leaders need a source for information that is worth their time to consume. So it's got to be valuable. And again, I realize that's all subjective. And it needs to be fact-based. A lot of our, we talk to people who are researchers. You know, you keep saying the data says, the data says, not just... I had a dream about this last night, and that's true. So 
for leaders, at least for me, it's so crucial for them to have sound information because they are basing the trajectories of their business on decisions they make based on what they hear in the media. Because how else do we know what's happening in Ukraine and how that's going to impact petroleum prices? Almost every company I know heats their businesses, counts on petroleum. And what happens in Russia and the Ukraine impacts us. Food prices impact us. We count on good information or we're making uninformed or misinformed decisions that damage our ability to do our work. That's exactly right. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to find that good information and know that it's good because the lines between factual news and reporting and data and commentary and opinion and propaganda and straight up lies is very blurred if it exists at all any longer. Like we're seeing in this new media environment that everybody is a content creator, everybody is a correspondent, and everyone has their own media company, essentially. The evolution of corporate advertising has moved so fast into the zone of influencer and content creators as the spokespeople for their brands and integrating their products into their daily Instagram lives or their TikTok because people build trust. You have these simulated relationships with people you follow every day who show up in your feed. I am definitely a victim of that. And the amount of money I've spent on Instagram from influencers I follow hawking different things that are like, I need that. Everybody does it. That's kind of the world we're in right now. But what's lost is this shared understanding of what is factual and how we define that, right? I think a lot about... Kellyanne Conway saying off the cuff in a CNN interview when Trump was president about alternative facts. There can be no alternative to facts. We used to have one definition of facts, verifiable information. And the fact that there have been individuals and, and powerful entities that have tried to sow mistrust in what is a fact or was not a fact is for their own agenda. And so media literacy is critically important. But I also think there needs to be more pre-bunking because one of the interesting things of research I've seen over the past few years, Google actually commissioned a big research study on this, on pre-bunking, was how effective it could be to have a trusted messenger put together a video for an audience who's vulnerable to disinformation. They did it around the vaccine, where you essentially say, there are going to be bad actors who are going to try to manipulate you. This is what their content is going to look like. You might see stuff like this, and they will actually show memes or ads that are sowing disinformation about the vaccine. They are doing this because they have a political agenda or they have a social agenda or what have you, and they break it down. And they found in the research study that when people saw those ads from health professionals showing them what the disinformation would look like, they were inoculated against it when they were reached with it. It didn't have the same effect because they'd been given a little bit of an armor. Nobody wants to be duped. If you hear that somebody's trying to dupe you, you're not going to trust them. The problem is when you're just getting the information, you don't have a reason to feel like you're being duped unless you've sort of had that education. So it's another thing that I think that we need to just sort of bring more from, you know, the ground level up pre-K on in this country, but that we really do have to come back to a shared understanding of media literacy, of facts. And then the part that's harder to solve for, but I'm obsessed with, is morality. When we talk ethics of journalism, we used to live in maybe it's a little inflated in my brain, but of a space where there was a moral code 
We have seen that be absolutely destroyed in America, where there is not a moral bar. There are people at the highest echelons of politics and government in the United States that tout lies as facts every day. And a media that increasingly doesn't hold them accountable because they don't want to be seen as partisan and they don't want to lose access to those elected officials to be able to report the news. And so that's just another perfect storm that we've experienced where we have seen the mainstreaming of lies from the highest levels of business, industry, and political figures in this country. So how do you bring it back down to a common shared understanding of of what is right, what is wrong, and what is true and what is false? In the past, it was largely the job of journalists, right, to hold people accountable to the truth. If Elon Musk makes a claim, I would expect that to be vetted just like I would expect a president to be vetted. But it's such a sticky wicket because if a journalist doesn't have access, they're dead in water. That's right. And Elon Musk, it's hard just not to pick on him or point to him because he he paid $44 billion to own one of the biggest megaphones in the world to drive a conversation around himself. I mean, Trump leveraged that platform for free to do that to make every reporter on cable news report on every tweet he ever did. Elon had to buy it. Really expensive toy that he bought. But he has, in doing that, effectively been able to make the story about him every day that reaches thousands and thousands of influencers across this country that rely on Twitter to be their source of information and trusted information and dialogue. And so it is really a precarious moment that we're in. This is something that I built Good Information and Courier Newsroom as one solution. We need a lot of them. But our approach is to actually intentionally start with caring about the people that are left behind by paywall news and trusted national and other news sources, people who are not very politically engaged. They're they're generally less educated. They're busy. They work multiple jobs. It's more than a third of the population in the country. It's not a small community, passive news consumers that we focus on. And we focus entirely on how do we build their trust through community and local news? How do we be transparent about our values so they can make a decision about that? And how do we meet them where they are on social media, in their algorithms, with content and information they want so it'll continue to feed their news feeds with our content? So we can then get that good information in front of them in a way that is truly accessible to their media consumption habits today. And I just hope that we see more efforts like that, because in every crisis and disruptive moment in an industry like we're experiencing in media, there's enormous opportunity. We have enormous opportunity to rewrite the rules and build a better media ecosystem. But we need to have an imagination about it. And we need to not be bound by the same incentives or business models, frankly, that aren't serving the population good information today. Tell us a little bit about Courier and good information. I think you mentioned at the ILA conference that you built your organization understanding how the algorithms work so that they work within the algorithms rather than get victimized by them. That's right. So I mentioned that I pivoted into politics for a number of years. I really grew my career running digital advertising and content organizing programs in progressive politics. And so I really learned these platforms. I learned how to be strategic about advertising on these platforms because they are pay to play. The surest way you can puncture an echo chamber is to buy your way into the news feeds of specific audiences, which we do at Courier. We boost our news with ad dollars into the news feeds of our audience because they won't see it otherwise until we can be able to build a relationship with them. 
and they turn into email newsletter subscribers, et cetera. So I learned, frankly, a lot of what is sophisticated about our model in political work and advertising, because you have to be more efficient. You have to be scrappier. <laughs> you have a zero sum game that you're working towards. It fosters a lot of innovation and creativity and a lot of just how can you be as efficient as possible to reach the people you need with a message? And I took all of those skills and I brought it back into journalism because I felt this was part of what was lacking. This understanding of these platforms where the majority of people get their information today, how to use them and leverage them. If I could, I would take them over and change them all and make them good, good, like mission-driven entities. They're not. They are massive for-profit corporations in the billions and trillions of dollars. So that's not realistic. And so what can we do instead? We need to learn how to use them. We can't abandon them and seed them to the bad actors like we've done. We need to get smarter about it and drive that information there. So that was really the impetus for Courier was taking all of these factors I've talked about, no good trusted local news, news that isn't reaching people on social media platforms in authentic ways, news that is reaching a population that is much more vulnerable to disinformation because they don't proactively seek out factual news. That's really where we decided to create this. We started it in 2019. We now have newsrooms in eight states across the country. They are run by reporters who live in these communities. And we have trained these reporters on how to produce journalism for TikTok, for Facebook, not to write articles that no one's going to read and then post them on Facebook or Instagram. Instead, they are creating this content that is factual, that is values-driven, that is transparent, and is local. And that's how we build trust and engagement. And I think there's enormous opportunity to scale models like ours to be able to really right the ship when it comes to, frankly, the volume of good information that reaches people because the volume is turned so, so low down for most people today. So that's what Courier is. We're excited to be scaling and growing because we've seen a lot of success with this. And the other piece that's unique about our model we're fully mission-driven, is that we care about increasing civic engagement, right? I believe that a strong democracy is one where everyone can participate, and that is not a partisan goal. I personally have my own partisan background in politics, but I actually care much more deeply about a vibrant, inclusive, and representative democracy. And we are in a political environment in this country where there are these warring factions on both sides, and yet the majority of people don't want that. They want government that does good for them. They want to be able to have opportunity to have a well-paying job, to raise their kids, to put food on the table, to help their kids get through school. They want affordable college, affordable health care. Most people share the same wants and needs. And yet these bad actors have essentially created this environment of these warring factions that the information ecosystem is supercharging. And so if we want to be able to have a healthy democracy where everyone participates, we have to make sure that everybody is well-informed and empowered to participate. And so that's something we take very seriously at Career is we measure the impact that our boosted news has on turnout. Not who you vote for, but did you vote? And we have shown time and time again that when we reach this audience with our news content that is factual and it is transparent about our values, we believe in climate change, we believe in reproductive access and rights. We're very explicit about the beliefs that we have and the values that we hold. But when we reach this population with that information at the local level, they turn out and vote at a higher rate than they would otherwise. And that is, I think, the most beautiful part of this work is that most journalists get into journalism 
to make people's lives better or to make society better. And I think that this is a ripe opportunity for news organizations to really look inward and think and leaders of other institutions and organizations to really look inward and think about how can we contribute in a positive way to a healthier information environment in this country. So you've said a couple things that I want to jump into. One, that we need to work within the systems that exist. So no, we post on Twitter. We won't see any platforms to bad actors or speech. Okay. Because that's part of the ethos, right? We need to be where the bad actors are because otherwise they own the media. They own the platform if they're the only ones on it. And we are seeing that, right? Like the extreme right has started a lot of their own platforms where organizing is happening and information flow is happening without any accountability. So we won't cede any territory on the platforms that are the most widely used by Americans, including I mean, Twitter is not used by most Americans, to be very clear, but it has a very important role in shaping the conversation that reporters then bring into their reporting to local communities. So it plays a role. But Meta, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok are insanely powerful platforms. We know that we need to be there and we need to be there at parity with disinformation actors if we want the truth to win out. That's important for us to hear because we had pulled back from Twitter and also from TikTok. TikTok because of the Chinese control. Well, it is dicey. I don't want to say like your data is secure because I'm very concerned about that too. I've joked with my team, I need a burner phone just for TikTok so they're not scraping my phone data. But you also can't not be on the platform that has become very, 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 very much so the most powerful information distribution channel that we have today. So it's tricky, very tricky. If it is the most powerful channel, us making a conscious stand to not be there doesn't help us. It just means your information isn't reaching the people that are on there who are not making that decision. Because we made a principled decision, but it may be an ill-informed or quasi-informed decision. It very much depends on your audience. Your audience might not over-index on TikTok as much as they are on Twitter, right? Given, you know, your audience is one of very influential leaders. And people interested in leadership and leadership development. So you might it might not be the worst thing in the world to not be on there. But that's how I think about any platform and its worth, because it's a lot of work. Every time we onboard a new platform, it's a lot of work and, and that's money. And so being really deliberate about who is your audience and where are they and how do we most authentically reach them will help you determine what platforms make the most and young leaders are more likely on TikTok. Very much so. Probably not a bunch of CEOs on TikTok because... They don't want their phone scraped. That's right. That's right. <laughs> or they have burner phones that I don't have yet. But <laughs> I'm still a voyeur on TikTok. I'm, I'm, I'm still not a native. I'm not a poster. I'm a voyeur. It is good content. <laughs> to your point, it's important to know what's there, know the benefits and know the risks, then make an informed decision. And know that there's going to be platforms that take over in a few years that we don't even know about now, right? We are in a shifting environment. Facebook is pulling all news and political content off the platform because a lot of reasons. One, competition with TikTok. Two, it caused them a lot more headaches than it did benefits. And what is that going to mean when that was the most powerful platform? You know, it gives opportunity for new ones to come online and to take people's attention. And so that's something we also pride ourselves on at my organization. You have to stay nimble. You can't create a product or a news service reliant on any one channel because the disruption and the, the revolution that's happening in media and media consumption, frankly, is just faster than it's ever been in my lifetime, certainly. 
assuming that most of our listeners are folks in some leadership roles, various levels, and they're making decisions based on what they hear in the news, largely, with the ecosystem restructure and disruption that you're talking about, if I'm an executive, where do I go to get good information? I have to say, I'm not as worried about executive leaders because they tend to be higher educated and more highly informed. And like I said before, there's not a supply problem. Okay. You know, my information diet, I read Axios AM every morning. I listen to the morning edition on NPR every morning. Like I have a very healthy, good information news diet. Mm -hmm. I just am well aware that I am not reflective of the larger population and that they are not getting that information. So they are living in a different reality based on what information they are getting. So I'm less worried about your audience of leaders. I think they're probably very good at, at media critical. I think the thing that they should think about is how are they getting their messaging across, their good information across to the audiences they care about in this disruptive moment. Similar to your question about how you guys are, right? I think that's the way leaders should be thinking about it. It's really having the self-awareness that their information diet is not reflective of the majority of people. It really is the haves and the haves not of good information today. And that self-awareness will help think about how do we reach more people and how do we also break down our own silos and echo chambers? Because the more we silo ourselves with other people like us, the less we're ever going to be able to build bridges, reestablish trust in each other, in institutions. You know, I don't need to say all of the negative things that'll come, but we've got to be able to figure out a way to have a shared sense of truth and understanding and, and right and wrong again. As you've said, there is opportunity and crisis everywhere, depending on where you focus and what you do. If I do nothing, it's likely the effort I could have helped solve a problem goes unused. You've started Courier. You started Good Information. Clearly, you believe there is opportunity and you're staying on the most powerful platforms in the world. I hear me as a leader, what do I consume? And then there's getting our message out. Who are my stakeholders? Who are my constituents? Where do they go? What media do I use to reach them? That still seems like an absolute must that I just have to update it more often to understand where people are and what they're consuming. Yeah. And I mean, institutions, large and small, are all grappling with this right now, right? Like you talked about press releases earlier in the conversation. So no one reads press releases. <laughs> they really don't. And so what do they do? I was a press secretary for a short period of time for my home state senator from Rhode Island, Jack Reed. And I was so perplexed. This was in 2009 about why we were sending press releases to reporters who would copy and paste them on the thing instead of just posting on Facebook to our constituents the message. You know, frankly, Trump understood that better than most is that the filter bubble is no longer necessary when you can directly communicate to your constituents or your target audience. And you have to use all tools available to you to do that. But again, knowing that audience and where they are is just really important and where they move to if they move is important. So it just our team members need to look at the data and demographics and manage that process, yeah. which they do and they do aggressively. Right. What are the podcasts or the publications that your target audience subscribes to, partnerships with those or cross promotions? That's how you navigate the system today. You don't work through the old channel as much unless there's real utility there, right? If your audience is an avid cable news watcher, then yeah, you want to get bookings on cable news. But we've made this transition where that used to reach the masses and it doesn't. On his best night, Tucker Carlson has like 2.3 million viewers. 
on his best night. There's over 400 million people in America. That is not a good number. And yet we still have an inflated idea of the reach of some of these national media organizations, and they just don't have the power or reach that so many bad actors and other entities on social media do. The message I hear from you significantly is less power than they used to. Much less power than they used to. They're talking to an increasingly small choir of people that are already very much in line with their point of view. If you were advising politicians going forward or someone who wanted to get an important message out, what would you suggest to them? I hear advertising helps. Do you advertise on Google ads? How do you boost? Campaigns certainly do. Um, I advertise all over the internet. And actually, I started a newsletter with one of my colleagues a number of years ago that we still continue through good information. It's called For When It's Worth, FWIWmedia.com. It tracks the digital advertising spending on both sides of political campaigns. And they just released a report last week, the newsletter that showed that Republican candidates and campaigns had essentially ceded digital advertising to Democrats which could have played a role in some of the outcomes. They just stopped spending on some of these platforms. Some ways, because of a principled decision that they wanted to get off of the platforms if they didn't trust them. In other ways, they weren't getting the same return on their investment because of changes to the algorithms. And so it was really interesting to see that Republicans had leapfrogged Democrats when Trump came into office in terms of their investment in digital, and Democrats had turned the tables on that in a big way. So that's one way to do it. But when you're talking to candidates or elected officials directly, something that I like to stress is to know yourself really well and not try to be someone you're not, but be your authentic self as directly as possible on the channels where your people are. I think John Fetterman, an unbelievable candidate who ran an unbelievable campaign that was very social media savvy, he was never not himself. He was always true to himself. He made content that was true to his tone, his snark. Josh Shapiro, very different candidate, both elected by Pennsylvania statewide in the midterms, very different from Fetterman. His daughter launched a college students for Shapiro TikTok channel, super authentic because she's a college student and got all of these. And so Josh would show up on it sometimes, but he wasn't trying to do TikTok and be cool on it. He let the people who are native to those platforms make him cool on it by being the messengers and the content creators. So it's really authenticity is the most important thing and being where your voters or your constituents are. And that is increasingly, like I said, not cable news. Like if you want to raise national money as a candidate for a campaign, yes, go on MSNBC. You will raise a lot of money with some good talking points. But are you going to inform or persuade any voters that you need? No, not likely. I equate some of that to lawn signs. I'm not sure why people use lawn signs. There is an age-old debate in politics around the utility of yard signs. I don't know where I fall on it, to be honest. <laughs> it is impression. I spend way too much on my landscaping to clutter it up with lawn signs. Right. That's right. My personal take is that it matters if no one knows your name to get those yard signs in the community. If you're, for instance, a local or school board candidate, if it's the presidential candidate, I don't really know the utility in that outside of just a proud team cheerleader more emotional than effective. Yeah, it plots neighbors against each other and pranksters at night go rearrange all the signs and aggravate neighbors. And, and that causes some humor for us. So as business leaders, because we've talked now politics, as a business leader, how do I think about podcasts, news, magazines? Where do I show up? Because all of us have limited time 
even if podcasts don't cost the person money to appear on, most of them are busy. They can't be full-time podcast speakers. I would steal a page from Liz Smith's playbook. She's a uh, Democratic political strategist who worked for Pete Buttigieg and kind of helped him rise very quickly in the presidential primary in 2020 with a go everywhere approach. I would just amend it and I would say go everywhere that matters to your audience. So again, knowing who your audience is and then going everywhere they are. So if, for instance, you are a founder and CEO of a new baby formula company, go everywhere that new moms are going to get information and prioritize those small publishers or those Instagram influencers or YouTube vloggers to spend your time with to get in front of them through a trusted messenger or brand that that audience already trusts. And then sure, you'll probably get on the Today Show anyway, but don't start there, right? Start with actually where are these communities going to get the information that this is going to be a natural fit for. Liz really did that with Pete where he went everywhere. He was on all sorts of local and national radio TV. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing Pete for a while in that campaign. And I think if you just tailor that around where your audience is and go everywhere, you should. You should do the podcast. You should do the YouTube influencers. It's a little overwhelming because there's more variety and optionality than before. But it's really important because you're going to get a much stronger ROI if you're trying to sell a product or sell an idea by really finding the people that are most amenable to hearing that and wanting it. How would I pick a YouTube influencer? Because I don't know many. I know the, you know, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian and, you know, the ones that you can't not know, but they're not going to be selling leadership podcasts and leadership services. For most of us, we wouldn't go to the two of them as influencers. How would I find who's an influencer that matters for my business, for any of our leaders? So I have a very specific idea for you on this because I have done this before. I would suggest that you start a new account on whatever platforms you want. So let's just use Instagram as an example. You start a new account. It's going to be your little burner Instagram account, you know, whatever you want to be. And you search for leadership, leaders, leadership training, different keywords in it. And you see what content comes up and you start to follow some people that have bigger followings who are talking about leadership. That is suddenly going to curate a feed for you. There's going to be an algorithm created and you're going to get introduced to things that are tangentially related or directly related to leadership or leaders or conversation related to that stuff. So then you can start to identify. The other thing I would suggest is big thought leaders who've written books or have podcasts that you follow in the leadership ecosystem. What are they listening to? Who are they talking to? Like often they'll say that in interviews, et cetera, or engage on social with those questions. But then you can really start to curate, understand what that environment looks like on these platforms to identify who the best fits are for interviews or pitching or what have you. Thank you. We did that on Twitter years ago. And there were people that we would follow Friday and, and that stuff. It just, yeah. gosh, it just, we all got busy. I have a burner Instagram account where I only follow far right wing accounts and meme generators and things of that nature. So I know, so I, I'm able to tap into an echo chamber of someone very much not like me to understand what story they're being told about America or about the news of the day. And it's horrifying, but you really can kind of create these curated environments and then you really understand how scary they are to live within. 
but you can do it for good too, like with a leadership curation. <laughs> I probably need to stay away from things that will horrify me because got not good use of my energy. There's no need. <laughs> for then business leaders interested in leadership, same thing, create not even a burner, but just start following influencers and see how do we co-elevate one another and bring more good good as in factual, ethically informed, transparent content into the world. And that's the double-edged sword of these social platforms is they can know you really well. So it's quite easy to do this. You know, if I'm going to travel somewhere and I start researching on Google, different restaurants or hotels, suddenly my Instagram is somehow going to start showing me promoted posts of hotels in that area. Once you start doing that, once you start liking certain content on a platform, you're going to see a lot more of it quite quickly. From a research perspective, that's really useful. It is. It's why TikTok and Instagram have really given Google a run for their money on search and YouTube too. Younger people search only on those platforms. They don't go to Google. They go to TikTok and search for things. And that's the content that they're getting that gives them the information they want. Yeah, I'm just thinking of how frightening it is if I want to search something anonymous. I don't happen to be pregnant because I'm well beyond that, but I, I certainly wouldn't want to search pregnancy and then start getting diaper ads and baby formula. And you are speaking to someone that is currently going through IVF. And so, yes, I am getting targeted <laughs> with a lot of fertility content. So it's, it's true. And some of that we can now manage with telling Google we don't want tailored content. I assume I could do the same thing with TikTok and YouTube. Yeah, they all have their little ways where you can mute stuff and you can try to curate. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't use them, but they exist and people should use them to make sure that they're getting more different ideas, opinions, content. What would you recommend for people to do to ensure that they are getting a balanced media diet? That's a tricky question. I think that means different things to different people. I really think it's more about, I feel like a, a little bit of a broken record, but it's more about being aware that you have an information diet that is unique to you, but maybe also unique to your community of peers, whether they're your work colleagues or your family and friends that are of a same socioeconomic class, et cetera, and understanding that people of a different socioeconomic class or racial background or geography have a very different experience to help us just build more empathy and compassion around that stuff. And then where you have interest in that, especially if they're audiences you want to engage or just understand better, putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about what information or content are they looking at and how can I explore that? And so ideally, you know, in a perfect world, these social media platforms would be doing that. They would be lifting up the content that builds bridges between people and builds trust and empathy and they're not. Instead, they're lifting up the content that divides and so is mistrust. And so we have to be a little bit more intentional, those of us who have the media literacy and background and sort of wherewithal on this stuff to really think about what we can do to get out of our own echo chambers, our own silos more often, and to encourage others to do the same. That's one recommendation we want listeners to take away, no matter who they are. We all need to think about the fact that we have a media diet and manage it just like we would our food diet. I can't eat all hot fudge sundaes and expect to be healthy. What else do you want people to walk away with from our conversation? That is an easy question. Don't underestimate the power of sharing good information and content on your own social media channel. Every time that you see something that informed you, that you trust, or that spoke to you, 
that you don't share it, every time you don't share that piece of content, just think that somebody who's sharing bad information did. The only way we're going to out volume bad information is if we all collectively engage more with sharing good information and don't assume that people already know it or have it. I don't mean do things that are political if you don't want to invite political debate, but you truly never know the impact a piece of content that you just reshare on your Instagram story or your Twitter feed, what it can have for someone that follows you because they know you from PTA or they know you from high school way back when, and they have a totally different information diet, but they've seen it from somebody that they know as a human being. That is so powerful. It's something that I always encourage is just always, always share the good information that you find and don't assume that people already have it because a lot of them don't. What's a reasonable amount to share? That's different for everyone. <laughs> You'll find your comfort level. There's plenty of people on my feeds that overshare all the time. <laughs> and then they become louder though, right? Because they share a lot of content. They get more engagement than people who share less content. And then you see them more in their feed. So it's tricky, but you can share very infrequently and it's still going to matter. I think a lot of people passively they don't share. They're either not confident in their opinion or what have you, but that's where I think news is really important. Trusted news sources at the local and national level are important because that you have a way of breaking through people's echo chambers because of your trusted relationships. The fact that they follow you means that they've let you in to their feed. And so you have a lot of power there. So maybe I should share more. I live in Rhode Island. I'm from Rhode Island. I don't work in Rhode Island politics or anything of that nature, but I am always very adamant that I am giving the voter deadlines and the registration deadlines to my Rhode Island because I have a lot of friends from high school that follow me that I have relationships with who live in very different eco echo chambers than I do to break through. So whatever that local context means to you, it's really important. Final question. What are the biggest consequences if we don't rein in mis- and disinformation as a nation? I think we're staring down the barrel of not having a functional, safe and secure democracy in this country. I really do. I think that there are a lot of just negative forces at play right now and a lot of bad intentioned people and entities that are very deliberately trying to undermine our elections and our democracy for their own political and social interests and financial interests. If we don't find a way to rein in the bad information and we don't find a way to increase the volume of good information that informs people and empowers them to participate, then I think that we will absolutely fail at this great experiment that in the American democracy, that really terrifies me. And it also very much motivates me to do the work that I do. When you say bad actors, I grew up as a kid with parents who were in the intelligence community. So I'm hearing those voices in my head saying... There were people who would like to destabilize the United States for various reasons. That's right. Some of that disinformation is absolutely intentional. They don't care which party they support. They want instability in the U.S. That's right. Bad actors, in my opinion, are people who lie, who lie knowingly, because a lot of people who share disinformation and misinformation They've been duped. They're not the bad actors. The ones who seeded those narratives and that information are the bad actors, right? You're not a bad person if your whole information diet is a lot of right-wing misinformation and you share it and that's the world you leave in. You've been manipulated. And so that's where I, I do want to draw that distinction because it's really important. I'm not saying a huge percent of this country are bad actors. I'm saying they're very intentional, powerful players abroad and domestic that intentionally lie to manipulate the public. For all kinds of reasons. For all kinds of reasons. 
financial, political, social. Again, just reinforcing the point, having a diet of trusted news sources, not just stuff from my friends, because my friends could be duped. I could be duped. I should be going to not the opinion page in the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, but something a journalist has published. And that's the other thing I would plug to the audience, support good information, support local journalism, support careers, because the more resources we can get into the hands of good information publishers, the more they will be incentivized and inclined to reach more people than just paying consumers. So we don't have a silver bullet yet. We don't have that solution that's going to save all of journalism. I'm working real hard to get a lot of billionaires <laughs> to take this on and their mantle because unfortunately we need them. We need good billionaires because there's a lot of bad ones. The more that people can support good information and in local journalism also can go a long way. Tara, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today and for your passion and all the good work that you do with Courier and good information and the things you haven't talked about that I'm sure you're also doing. Where would people find you if they want to connect with Courier, with good information, and with you? Still on Twitter, <laughs> at Tara E. M. C. G. Tara E. McG. Same thing on Instagram, but with an underscore, Tara E. McG underscore. And then CourierNewsroom.com. And you can find all of Courier's social accounts across the network of newsrooms. Share those newsrooms with people you know in the state that we're in. Share good information. And yeah, I would I would love to hear from listeners on their thoughts about this topic. It's just such an important one to keep talking about in this country. Thank you. And you'll be featured in the LinkedIn newsletter. So we encourage comments posted on LinkedIn. We're at the Innovative Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. We do have a newsletter and we encourage people to follow it. You will not get spammed. It's once a week. Thank you so much, Tara. And thank you to our listeners. And I'll say, just follow us, share us, like us, elevate us in your news feeds. Thank you.